0: mindfulness
1: mode
0: stop asking what you can do and start asking who do you want to be
1: reach new heights of calm focus and happiness You're on mindfulness mode with me your host and mindfulness life coach Bruce Langford mindful tribe we're here to talk about something that I don't think we talk enough about I and I'll make that a personal thing. I don't think I talk enough about it. I think about it a lot. I don't know how to approach it sometimes. I will admit that. We're here to talk about racism. And we're here with someone who is really taking this and and going with it and running with it and making it his thing. And he has a, a consulting firm specializing Get this, in guiding white people to confront racism because we need to be doing this. We definitely need to be. As a trusted advisor, he guides executives, people managers, and dedicated change agents at Fortune 500 companies, startups, and nonprofits. He's a sought after professional speaker, a panel moderator, a leadership coach, and facilitator of difficult conversations. I'm here today with Jared Carroll and I'm very excited to talk to you, Jared. Thanks so much for being on the show today.
0: You're very welcome, Bruce, and and thank you for having me and thank you for that warm introduction. It's very, very great to be here.
1: My pleasure. So are you in mindfulness mode today?
0: Oh, I'm, well, I was about to say I'm always in mindfulness mode, but that would be probably a stretch.
1: I try to be always in mindfulness mode but today I am. You definitely sound like it, you seem like it, and you have a mindfulness mode kind of voice. I've noticed that, yeah. Okay, Okay. I'll take that. (laughs) Yeah, you have a great voice. I think you have an awesome voice. Uh, Going on with with your bio here, it says, Jared's storytelling approach inspires and influences individuals and groups Worldwide, he's an avid reader, an accomplished musician, and an active meditator. And he lives with his family in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I would think it probably isn't that easy to find a white person who can talk about racism and is an expert in this field. And so I would expect you're very much a sought-after speaker and and uh, panel. You know, uh, participant and that kind of thing. Is it true? Are there very few people like you that do what you do, Jared?
0: Yeah, there. Thank you. There, there aren't that many. I, I would be remiss if I were to say I was the only one, because um, there are there are some big names out there. Um, so, for example, Robin D'Angelo, A lot of folks have heard of her with her her books, uh, White Fragility. Um, there's Tim Wise, uh, who is out of the south i believe new orleans or mississippi he does a lot of speaking um and and podcasting about uh, racism and and anti-racism there's john bwin who uh he had a, a great podcast a few years ago called seeing white so really a an introspection and a reflection on what does white whiteness mean so those you know those are three very prominent people who've been doing the work for you know for quite a quite a long time and doing it well. And of course, there are others. It's not like they're the only three, but Mm -hmm. to your Mm -hmm. point, there aren't, there aren't that many of us. And I think that's part of my motivation is to be another voice in that space, because as you said, we need, we need more white people, uh, doing this work and, uh, Sitting with those uncomfortable conversations, exploring their stories, exploring how they or how we, uh, some often unwittingly are perpetuating uh, systemic racism, white supremacy. So I've stepped in because I do feel comfortable. I haven't always felt comfortable, mm-hmm. but over the years and, and largely due to mindfulness, which I'm sure we'll, we'll get into quite yeah, a bit, yeah. um, gotten to a place where, yeah, not only do I feel comfortable, but I feel I'm in a place where I can help other, especially white folks, get to a place where they feel comfortable and we can actually have the conversations that will lead to to action and, and change.
1: Well, I think you're extremely courageous and extremely strong. And in your book... Very vulnerable. You are being very vulnerable in your book, and and we're going to get to that. But what does mindfulness mean to you, Jared, and especially when it comes to this topic?
0: Yeah. Gosh, it means so many things, Bruce. But I'd say if I were just to capture it in kind of one phrase, mindfulness to me in everything, but, it's, but it's particularly when we're talking about racism, means staying present. Mm-hmm. Right? I think anyone, I'm sure your listeners know, you know, mindfulness is about staying present with whatever's happening now and now and now. Right? Uh, And that's hard to do anyway, but especially if there are ideas and perspectives and truths that we aren't familiar with, don't want to uh, believe, struggle with, then it makes it extra challenging. And so for me, it's like, all right, how do I sit with that uh, unfamiliarity, discomfort, and observe what's going on around and inside me so that I can be as impactful in the conversations and the contexts um, that I need to be?
1: well it was so interesting in your book and when i say vulnerable i really mean that like you talked about how when you were back in university and you were in a class and you were just you thought you were you were giving a compliment to the Filipino women in the class and you said you had always thought Filipino women were hot and and then later you look back and thought, oh my gosh, what did I say? And and everything else. That's being pretty vulnerable, Jared, to put that in your book. Was that difficult to tell that story and include it in the book?
0: Yeah, thank you. Um, you know, Bruce, not really. And because by the time, you know, that was 30 years ago. yeah. 29, actually, it was uh, you know spring of '92, which people who know their history, you know, that was the the Rodney King, uh, right, as they call it, you know, riots. Um, so that was my freshman year in college, mm-hmm. and yeah, you know, I was a, a partier. I was a college athlete. Uh, I didn't I didn't get it. Uh, I didn't get See. anything except what was right in front of me and the beers I was going to drink that night and the mm-hmm. you know the game I was going to play on Saturday. That was my life, right. And so, um, you know, if you would have asked me that question maybe 10 years ago when I first started really kind of telling these types of stories and getting them out and becoming publicly vulnerable, then, yes, I would have said it was hard. But because I've been doing it now, telling those types of stories on the page, on the screen, in person, you know, for, gosh, yeah, going on 10, 10 or so years... it it becomes easier and it becomes just kind of what I do. So that said, though, it still is awkward and it's still uh, embarrassing. And that's kind of the point. If I can tell those stories and someone reads them, whoever reads that is going to have something that's similar. It might not be as extreme. It might not be the same dynamics, but it's going to be something that they did that maybe they're not so proud of that right. and they can see, ah, oh, I see he's, he's processed, he's changed, he's evolved, he's learned. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of the point, you know, how can I be a, 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 what I call a possibility model? Yeah.
1: Well, how did you, Jared, evolve to this place where now this is your work? This is what you do.
0: Yeah. Gosh. You know, w- do we have a six, six months or so to, to chat? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, You know and i and i talk about this in the book uh my father was a big part of um of my story you know even even though he was a a white man he was he was a gay man Um, he died of aids in 2000 Um, and that's Mm -hmm. not a spoiler alert i I share that pretty early on in the book um and when that happened i was 27 so people Mm -hmm. can do the math if they want to figure out how how old i am um and I had evolved from that story of in college and that type of thinking, but I hadn't really done any mindfulness work. I hadn't done really a lot of kind of what I call self-development or, you know, inner work, personal work. I hadn't really done Mm -hmm. that, but my dad who was a gay man and all the struggles that, that, that he had to deal with through his life and very well read and learned and progressive and just, just, got it. He had been trying to teach me, you know, ever, ever since I was a little kid and it took, you know, maybe 15 years for some of it to start kind of seeping in. And so when he died, I was 27. Um, I was living in San Diego at the time. I was surfing. I was parking cars at a hotel. That was my job. I was a valet. I lived right on the beach. It was a pretty, it was a pretty good life, I have to Mm -hmm. say, but I wasn't really, um, I wasn't seeing full humanity. My -hmm. world was very homogenous. It was very white. It was very straight. It was very limited in the activities and people who I hung out with. Uh, And when my dad died, it was almost like, oh, here's what he's been talking about. You gotta Mm -hmm. go and and evolve who you are. Mm -hmm. And so I decided, you know, I don't wanna be that guy anymore. I don't wanna be the guy doesn't know who isn't interested who doesn't care who uh dismisses who is in this kind of tunnel vision and so uh i moved up to san francisco started teaching um eventually got into a job where i taught a social justice curriculum mm-hmm. which there's a whole mindfulness part of that too which we can explore right. and you know the rest as they say is history i mean there are a lot more details but I'd say the last six, seven years, I've really been focusing on what I'm doing now as a, as a you know on my own, my own business and consulting and 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 really narrowing in on, you know, working with white people um, through my own journey because I see myself in many of the people who I work with or who I would like to be working with.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So, what is one of the most difficult ideas to get across to your audience if you're talking to white people about racism what is it that they just don't seem to get
0: yeah it's this idea that white supremacy and and whiteness you know and i'm putting them in in quotes because it's a, a not because it's not a thing but because people don't understand that whiteness is this kind of pervasive norm and this Uh, this dominating presence that's existed really since whiteness was even invented by Portuguese slave traders back in the 1400s. Mm. So I think to answer your question, the most difficult part is when I or anyone talks about white supremacy, white privilege, uh, any of these concepts, people take it personally. They take it individually and they say, wait a second, I'm not a racist. Wait a second. I've never said the N word. Wait a second. I have black friends. Wait a second. I donated to Black Lives Matter, and they take all these individual um, kind of criteria, if you will, and and say, well, if if I do all these good things, how can there be this white supremacy thing that you're talking about? How can I have white privilege? And that's that can be a difficult conversation for people to enter into because there's so much resistance. There's so much defensiveness. Mm. And so what I try and do, and actually this is where I bring mindfulness into it is, you know, whether, and there are different contexts, right? If I'm giving a talk or if I'm facilitating, or if I'm doing one-on-one coaching, there are all kinds of different dynamics, Mm. but generally is, you know, tell me a little bit more about why you're feeling that way. What's coming up in you, why you feel the need to, uh, you know, to be defensive Right, so it's this combination of challenging, but also supporting, uh, that I think is a real important dynamic for me, and I would say for other people doing this work.
1: Well, I uh, feel like I can't avoid the fact that I'm white and I have white privilege. It's just the way it is, isn't it? Isn't that true? Yeah. I don't. Well, I, I don't feel particularly good about it. I mean, it's just. It is. Is what it is. I. I. I want to embrace people from other cultures, and I want to understand them, and I want to. Uh, I'd love if I could make things better, mm-hmm. but the fact is. It's, it's a really difficult thing. You have really embraced this, so you have way more understanding than I do about how to do that and how to go about it.
0: Yeah, well, and I say this in the book, you know, one of, I have kind of four, you can call them pillars, I call them lenses, through which mm-hmm. I kind of view the world. Uh, one is mindfulness, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, storytelling is one. Um, EQ, emotional intelligence, right? Yeah. And those three are the ones that kind of, okay, how do we go about in our conversations, in our workplaces, in our relationships, how do we understand um, how we're interacting with people in ways that are mutually beneficial, that aren't harmful, that aren't uh, um, oppressive, that aren't marginalizing voices, that aren't um, gaslighting people, which is you know making people uh, think that their truth isn't their truth. Mm-hmm. So, those are all important, but the foundation of it is social justice. And so, going back to my dad and when I first moved up and started teaching, you know, social justice principles around who has the power and what are they doing with it, um, the difference between equity and equality, um, historical, <coughs> <coughs> excuse me historical oppression and marginalization. If we don't have this foundational, at least, at very least, appreciation or understanding that it exists, then we're going to enter into these conversations and these situations um, with insufficient understanding and information about what we're really talking about. And I think for white people, because we have the privilege of being, you know, kind of on the upside of power, right? The dominant group, the the winners in history. We use that and we say, well, you know what? This conversation is too uncomfortable, I'm out. Mm. Where what I'm challenging people to say, to shift is say, this conversation is really uncomfortable and I'm in and I'm gonna stay and learn and get better and be better. And that that's the challenge and I've seen more and more people stepping up, which is encouraging.
1: Hmm, that's great. So where does the responsibility lie? I assume it lies with every single one of us, but is it more so with like, if you're a CEO and you have a company or you're a team leader or you're, you're you know working in that leadership role, is that more an area where you can make a difference?
0: yes i mean yes yes and to all your questions right um it does so an important distinction um and they're interrelated is that we have to think of racism as a system you know when we hear the phrase like systemic racism institutionalized racism right these are systems that have been in place for hundreds of years. And yes, they've changed. And yes, you know, things are quote unquote better. And, and you know, the, legally and structurally there, there have been, there is, there has been, and there is progress. And mm-hmm. with every bit of progress, there's always, always backlash, right? I mean, you could point to any period in history and you'd see that even, I mean, literally this year, right? Um, and so, It's important to understand that we're talking about systems and individuals make up systems. Individuals make choices. Individuals have power, have authority, have influence. And so to answer your question, yes, it is all of our responsibility to, to learn, to grow, to understand, to evolve. And what do, what does each one of us do in our spheres of impact? Are spheres of influence. So if I'm say, a, you know, an individual contributor and maybe I'm, you know, just a couple years into my career, I might not have the decision-making power or the authority to, you know, to change policies at my job, but I do have relationships with people. I do have uh, contact with people. I do I might have external clients that I work with or customers, you know, I have so I can be an advocate, be an accomplice, be a co-conspirator, be um, a change agent. And though, to your, to your point, if I'm the CEO, if I'm a people manager and I have a lot more power, a lot more visibility, a lot more um, influence, then yes, I would argue you have more responsibility and I would say more opportunity to make changes. And that's the challenge is how do people like me who do this work work with very senior people who may even be leaning into this a little bit, but they're busy, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if I'm, the, if I'm the CEO of a company, I mean, I've got stuff to do. Definitely. And so how, what I try and do is say, all right, what can we do foundationally to help you shift your mindset? That's not going to be like, you know, change tomorrow or next mm-hmm. week. Mm-hmm. And while you're doing that, Like, we can't just like, okay, let's do a year program and wait till you're ready. Like, no, because stuff's going on in that year. How do we both get the foundation, but also get little action steps, little communications, little things uh, that people in those positions can communicate and actually drive change and set the tone, the vibe, the mood, the expectations, right? So those are the those are the the challenges and the opportunities for working with, with more senior
1: people. Wow. I'm, I'm really curious about this. Like to me, racism is about every nationality, every, every person on the planet, but do a lot of people see this as just black people, white people?
0: Yeah. So, and, and, I want to be clear, you know, I don't position myself as an expert on racism. I do position myself as someone who's done a lot of work and and exploration and understanding and, and can talk about with fluency and confidence and competence, these concepts, but I'm not a scholar. I'm not an mm-hmm. academic um, even the book is not a it's not an
1: academic type book it's a it's right. more of a kind of more of a memoir almost right like right and some parts of it are almost like poetry the way you've written it well, it's it's beautiful I, to read. Thank you thank you very much yeah. and that was intentional yeah. Um, yeah and so so to answer
0: your question, um, you know racism is a is about many things, but it's about power yeah. right and so in most of the world especially the united states you know north america europe you know white people so-called white people um are in power yeah. we we control government we control politics we control media we control uh, you know a lot of things and yes there are pockets of of non-white controlled things and yes there are people like oprah and lebron james and you know very wealthy, successful, you know, black people. Um, but ultimately it's about power. And so until, uh, or unless that power is more evenly distributed, it's, it's still going to be, we're still going to live in a systemically racist society. And to answer your question, you know, is it just about black and white? No, it's about all kinds of different people, um, from different backgrounds and different ethnicities. I think, um, you know because of the history of anti-blackness or you know anti-black mm-hmm. racism it's the most prominent and most obvious and you know if we had a couple hours we could go into all the different nuances of mm-hmm. of prejudices and intergroup and 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 whatnot but you know i think more recently the last couple of years because of covid and because of rhetoric from you know president or former president trump and, and others. There's been a lot of anti-Asian um, yes. racism. Yes. Uh, totally. I know where I live in the Bay Area. You know, Oakland, uh, San Francisco. There have been, um, you know, horrific, blatant, uh, aggressive attacks on Asians. Um, yes. And so, th- yes, it's a it's a similar theme. It's a similar kind of mindset. And there are nuances and spe- Specificities. Depending on histories and group dynamics and right. you know, so many other things,
1: right? And here in Canada, there's so much racism against Indigenous people, exactly. and you know, and, and then it's just really come to the surface, and it's just so painful to see how how Canadians have treated ind- Indigenous people. You know, it's just really, really painful.
0: Yeah. It is, and you know, obviously that's a history of of the United States as well, and really anywhere in the Western Hemisphere, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think going back to earlier, what we we're talking about this idea of you know privilege and supremacy for people who are like, wait a second, and those those sometimes those words are are triggering to white people. And I think if we can if we can almost like neutralize them, right? If we can say, hey, if I say you bruce or i jared or whoever's listening if you're white um you know we have white privilege that's not a that's not an attack that's not um a an insult right right? that's just a that's just a fact so let's not take it personally and let's explore what that means uh, socially politically culturally um, organizationally and individually and i think that's where mindfulness comes in how do yeah. we sit with that and go okay this isn't this isn't about me directly and whether i'm a quote unquote good person this is about the reality and how do how does each of us individually try to make that reality better in our spheres of of influence
1: yeah I love that mindfulness is such a central part of your book and a central part of what you do. And Mindful Tribe, you can check out his website, jaredcarroll.com, J-A-R-E-D-K-A-R-O-L, Jared carol.com and up there you'll see some some tabs and you can check out his podcast, you can check out the book a white guy confronting racism. I wanted to ask you when you got this idea to write a book, what was your plan? What were you trying to achieve <laughs> by writing this book? Yeah, great question. I'm laughing because
0: um, it actually started, and I tell this in the beginning of the book, so I won't go too much into details because I want people to discover it for, their, for themselves, but about two years ago, actually almost exactly two years ago, as we're, as we're recording this November, December of, uh, of 2019, I hired a resume coach okay. because I was, at the time, I said, you know, I think I want to get a job. So uh, I hired a resume coach and he helped me with a, a bunch of things. Wow. And... Uh, our last session together, it was December 18th. I'm I'm pretty good with dates. So I just, I happen to remember this date. He said, he's like, all right, like, you know, go do it. Like, you know, he gave me all these strategies to apply for jobs and, you know, how to write cover letters and, and all these things. And he said, um, you know, we just positioned you as this, this white guy who gets it, this, uh, you know, your emphases on communications and storytelling. How come I don't see you writing anything on LinkedIn? And I said, well, you know, I've just been kind of lazy and I, you know, I had all these excuses. He said, open up your laptop right now and write a post. So I did I banged out a post in five minutes. He said, I want you to write a post every day until you get a job. I'm like, okay, I can do that. So starting December 18th, 2019 for about a year so i never did get the job (laughs) but i just started writing uh it was pretty easy because i'm a writer like it wasn't that i was afraid i just kind of got lazy right you kind of get into these habits of inactivity right yeah and so you know january february march i'm writing and i'm writing about race and my dad and lgbt and mindfulness and storytelling and empathy and compassion and vulnerability like all these things and pretty much every day i don't know if i wrote every day but Um, And probably around May, even before uh, George Floyd was murdered, a couple Mm. people said like, dude, you got to write a book, like put this stuff into a book. I'm like, you know, whatever. And then, you know, George Floyd was murdered and, and then the summer and this real kind of uptick in, and especially white people being interested, you know, and this was the start of COVID if we remember, right? So there's just all these dynamics and I just kept writing and writing through the summer and the fall. and. I, I a friend of mine and I, I give her acknowledgement in the book. Her name's Kumari. I think it was around, must've been September of last year. She was basically like every post I'd write, she'd be like, Jared book now. <laughs> so like they were, people were demanding, you know, like, and it was, it was all in good nature. And they were just saying like, this, this is too good to not be captured and, mm-hmm. and, and structured in a way. So, you know, finally, about a year ago, I said, all right, let's see what I got. Mm-hmm. And I looked at, you know, all my stuff. I had like 300 posts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I call them vignettes. These little, as you mm-hmm. said, kind of little pieces of poetry almost. Yeah. I said, all right, what do I do with these? Oh, my gosh. Right? And so I started organizing by theme and, and, and tone. And, and it took several uh, rounds of editing and sorting and organizing. And then I finally had like, okay, I've got these 10 sections. And then from there it was like, all right, that's like 90% of the book. And I just, I wrote a kind of a longer narrative piece to, to introduce each one. I wrote an introduction and
1: boom, there you go. There you go. You have it. That's great. You must be so excited that the book is, uh, is a real thing now. Oh my!
0: I mean, if, if, if people could see, uh, you know, if this was on video, they'd see, you know, six boxes of, of books behind me. I just did a, a print run from my local, my local guy um, mm-hmm. to, you know, to go to local bookstores and, and sure. other things. Um, so, yeah, it's, it is really exciting. And, Bruce, you know what's interesting? And this is, I think, mindfulness. Because I've tried to really center mindfulness throughout this whole process... It kind of feels natural it kind of feels like yeah this is what i do this is who i am now i've published a book not in an arrogant way but just like yeah like this is what i'm meant to do
1: well, i'm feeling like there's nothing arrogant about you jared at all <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know and i was gonna ask you is there an example of an attack have you been attacked because whatever because of what you've said because of the work you do because i would expect that you probably have because and i i will say that i felt kind of attacked because i talked about racism on my show different times and and then i got a message how come you're only talking about racism with black people that's not right and then i'm like oh but just a minute i've talked about racism with white people too and then i kind of felt like hey i've just been talking about racism with white people and not enough black people and oh dear you know and and then all of a sudden i'm kind of getting attacked and so you probably understand where i'm coming from with that right
0: i totally do bruce and you bring up again if we had you know hours or weeks to discuss there's so many nuances to what you're sharing but i think the big takeaway for me so so the answer to your question yes i have been and and this is something I state in the book, and I'll tell anyone, any white person who is willing to listen. My discomfort, my, uh, the fact that I get criticized, that I get attacked, that people question my motives, my character, my my ability, all that I have to absorb. I have to absorb that. Doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. Doesn't mean I don't have feelings. Doesn't mean I don't get triggered. Doesn't mean I you know all that happens but because of mindfulness we absorb that we sit with it we we sit with it so we can respond mm-hmm. instead of react
1: mm-hmm.
0: um and i will say to people that is nothing anything that i will receive is nothing compared to what black people and other people yes. of color experience every day of their lives yes i think that's really important and so I've chosen as we've been talking about to do this work because I have something to say, I have, uh, um, you know, commitment and motivation, um, which is really based Bruce in, in humanity for so much of my, you know, first two and a half decades of life. I know now I didn't at the time, but I know now I was limiting my own and humanity and my ability to see others full humanity because of my kind of almost like I was wearing horse blinders, right? This is what I do. This is who I am. I'm an athlete. I'm a drinker. I am a sports guy. I don't care about any of this other stuff. And it's like, wow, how limiting. And so I understand that people will criticize me. In fact, it would be silly to, to not, um, Go, to go into this work thinking it's just going to be like, oh yeah, this is easy. No one's going to have a problem with it. Of right. course, of course they are. And actually, I've hired a coach. I've hired a black woman um, who does anti-racism work as a coach to help me just stay in my integrity. To um, st- and she has a mindfulness uh, angle in practice as well, which is mm-hmm. of course really helpful to navigate the the inevitable uh questions that i'm that i do and will continue to get
1: interesting yeah i'm not surprised that you have a coach i i know that when uh we connected about you being on the show you said about the chapter in your book called confronting racism with mindfulness and you said you'd be happy to read a few excerpts
0: yeah i would love
1: from that would you do that yeah i would love to do that thank you great yeah i'd love that
0: um I'm going to read this one because I think it's most central to to what we're talking about. It's called um, The Interconnectedness of Mindfulness and Racial Justice. We would all do well to pay closer attention to the interconnectedness of mindfulness and racial justice. Mindfulness allows us to be awake to the present moment that's happening now and now and now. Mindfulness keeps us in a state of equanimity, which allows us to respond, not react, to racial injustices that are happening and continue to happen all around us. Mindfulness helps us remember that we are not our emotions, that passion is not the same as purpose, that detachment from our views is good because it allows us to believe what we believe with clarity and commitment. Mindfulness shows us we are more impactful and effective when we move past the bomb throwing stage of the revolution. Mindfulness puts us in a position to influence and persuade with conviction and believability, helps our credibility and validity. Mindfulness helps us declutter our thoughts, prioritize what needs to be prioritized and speak and write with precision and relevancy and power. Mindfulness connects us to ourselves and others, builds bridges across differences, deepens trust, keeps us from going astray and devolving into argumentation, reminds us that debate is not the same as dialogue. Mindfulness makes it clear that we will not affect change in the world until we understand ourselves.
1: So well spoken, so, so, uh, so well worded. Thank you so much for that.
0: You're you're welcome.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, yeah. you know, I write. I love reading my stuff aloud um, right. because I write kind of as I'm thinking. I almost mm-hmm. write uh, as I'm speaking, mm-hmm. and so it was an interesting set of exercises with my editor. You know, we spent 10 or 12 weeks, you know, kind of just going through each chapter. And, mm-hmm. and it was it was great because, you know, his job is to make it more concise and tight and consistent. Mm-hmm. And, and I said, well, hey, I write kind of in a stream of consciousness style. So yeah. let's, let's find a compromise where you know, you do your job, but you still allow me to, you know, have the voice, which, which he did brilliantly. Um, actually a a Canadian, uh, out of of Montreal. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, it was, it was really fun to, to work with, with him over, you know, two or three month period.
1: Wow. That's really, really cool. And so, yeah, as we move forward in the interview, I want to ask you five quick answer questions, Jared, please this. So just, Just 30, 40 second answers are perfect. The first one is this, who is one person who has been a powerful mindfulness influence in your life?
0: Oh gosh. Um, You know who I'm gonna say? I'm gonna say Karen Van Dyne. In 1999, when my dad had non non hodgkins lymphoma, which was the result of his HIV, um, which later turned out to, you know, he died of AIDS. Mm -hmm. he started going to a meditation circle in San Francisco. And there was a woman, I was 26, and I went to uh, a couple of sessions with him. It was a gay men's uh, circle. Mm -hmm. And I went and there was this woman and she just held the space and she led us in meditation. And I thought it was weird and I thought it was awkward and I, I was physically uncomfortable. I was emotionally uncomfortable, but I know now 22 years later, like that was the beginning of it all.
1: Wow. That's very interesting. How has mindfulness affected your emotions or how you deal with your emotions?
0: Yeah, it's it's helped me be less volatile. Uh, it's helped me be able to sit with discomfort, whether it's with my family or kids or doing this work or, or what's going on in the world. Um, yeah, it's helped me. As you know, and I'm sure your listeners know, this idea of impermanence, Mm -hmm. it's going to pass. It's always going to pass. And so how do we get through those moments of discomfort with equanimity and with composure and integrity?
1: Tell us how breathing is part of your mindfulness practice. I breathe
0: every morning. Uh, in fact, this morning, maybe an hour before we're recording this, <laughs> um, it's central. Uh, it's something I always remind myself if I'm, whatever, in a in a tense situation or in a nerve, you know, if I'm anxious to speak or or you know, facilitate a group of of maybe less than welcoming people. Breathe, breathe, and it uh, it always brings me back to to that centering where I can do my best work.
1: I highly recommend your book, a white guy confronting racism, because it's very much a mindful book. Very much. Are there any other books you could, you would recommend Jared? Oh gosh.
0: You know, do we have, do we have weeks? I'm an avid reader, Bruce. Um, Mm -hmm. Anything by Pema children. Yes. Anything by Thich Nhat Hanh. um, Uh, I am a subscriber to Tricycle, the Buddhist review. Um, okay. I get the, the daily Dharma in my inbox every morning, which is a perfect you know, consumable dose of, of mindfulness and Buddhism every morning. Um, a book that I really loved was by uh, an author called uh, Shanti uh, Garbha, and it's called I'll Meet You There, and it's the mm. interconnectedness of, of um, empathy, mindfulness, and nonviolent communication really powerful i'm also really interested in uh works books by by black folks who have because yeah. um, i think we know especially in the west you know in the west mindfulness can be a very kind of white uh, yes. space right or asian yes. space because that's where its origins are but i'm really interested yeah. in how black people um kind of bring mindfulness into their practices and their mm-hmm. racial justice so there are th- three books that I really recommend. Um, Rhonda McGee, The Inner Work of Racial Justice. She's a law law professor at USF in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. Uh, Ruth King, Mindful of Race. She talks a lot about the difference between discernment and judgment, which Mm -hmm. is really powerful. And then a book I just read like last week, which is really powerful. Um, Zenju Earthland Manual, The Way of Tenderness. And she's a black queer woman and she brings in all of those identities into her mindfulness practice and some of the struggles she had about, you know, basic mindfulness principles of, of no self and, you know, letting go of identity with being a black queer woman in the world and what that what that looks like. So those those and other books really have helped me expand my mindfulness practice, especially in the context of the work I do around um, racial justice.
1: We'll put all of those books, all of that information into our our show notes at mindfulnessmode.com, so check that out. Now, if someone was listening to this today and thinking, you know, racism, I really don't think about it that much, but I want to be more in the loop. I wanna understand more. I wanna be more mindful as I, as I approach this topic. What would you recommend they do? What are your words of wisdom for them, Jared? <laughs> Thank you,
0: Bruce. Um, I'm assuming your listeners are already uh, at least interested if not you know, practiced in mindfulness, uh, philosophy, techniques, you know, practice. So yeah. take that dedication of equanimity, of non-judgment, of empathy, you know, the things that that we talk about in mindfulness and apply it to social and political and cultural context and relationships. And the number one way to do that, I think, because people are always asking me in this work, Jared, what should I do? What can I Mm -hmm. do? And I always say, stop asking what you can do and start asking who do you want to be? Because if you really commit and you really are interested in changing and being a part of you know, a new world, you're going to figure out what to do because you're gonna change who you are. And so to do that, start, if you listen to podcasts, find podcasts about racism by black people. If you read books, read some books I just recommended, read books by, uh, by black people and other people of color. Um, if you're watching uh, you know, documentaries, watch specifically documentaries about race and racism and, and oppression. So we have to start um, normalizing our day-to-day consumption of our media, of our news, of our politics. Because otherwise, we're just going to stay in our bubbles and hear the same voices. And so if we start to do that, and we start to hear all these different perspectives that maybe initially we're unfamiliar with, over time, we start to go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. And then when we see people at work or our family, or our neighbors, we can make the connections of what we've heard and absorbed with what we're observing and go, ah, now I see it. And so that might not be the most satisfactory answer to your listeners because it's not like a go do these three things by next week. But that's really what the path is about.
1: Jared, thank you for all the work you do with mindfulness, with racism, and thank you for being on the show. I really appreciate meeting you, knowing you, and uh, and hearing you share your message.
0: You're very welcome, Bruce, and thank you for, for inviting me and doing the work you do. I
1: appreciate you. You're welcome. Bye now. Hey, Mindful Tribe, thanks for joining me today. Great to have you with us, like I mentioned. Are you looking to feel more relaxed? Would you like to feel more focused? Would you like to feel less anxiety and less stress? Well, I have something for you. It's a free guided meditation I've created. It is called Waves of Content and it truly can bring you more calm. It can help you to feel more relaxed and uh, calm your mind, relax your body. Like I said, it's called Waves of Content, so it's yours free. Just go to mindfulnessmode.com/slash waves of content. Enjoy that guided meditation, and I hope you have a fantastic New Year celebration. All the best to you. Take what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.